I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning or whenever you're watching this and reflect upon this last this recent news. I want to first acknowledge that as I record this in my office, I'm at Vancouver School of Theology on the campus of the University of British Columbia, which sits upon the ancestral, traditional, unceded territory of the Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and the Squamish peoples. And uh, I just want to talk a little bit about how this has impacted me and what we might we think about the gospel. My whole ministry has been about trying to hold together indigenous identity and spirituality and and the Christian faith. The news of the finding of the unmarked graves of what is estimated to be 215 children who were attending the Kamloops Indian Residential School has produced all kinds of emotions and triggered all kinds of emotions. I was talking to a friend of mine, Nishka. He put it best. He said, it feels like losing a relative. All the emotions, all of the pain of being part of a country that has as its history the systematic attempt to destroy indigenous people's connection to land, family, creator, and has led ultimately to indigenous people being saddled with all kinds of wounds and hurts that have complicated lives. When something like this happens, then I think we indigenous people are taken right back, right back to the pain for many indigenous people, right back to as if it just happened. And that is why this kind of generational trauma needs healing work. So I want to talk to you for a short time about my thoughts and what the call for indigenous people continues to be to the rest of Canada, it continues to be a call for reconciliation. We've already heard the passage read from Matthew 18, and it's this is one of the passages that I thought about as the news of the finding of the unmarked graves of these children. The Indigenous Residential School were Canada's answer to how they would re-socialize or assimilate Indigenous people into Euro-Canadian culture. They did not want to embrace, Canada did not want to embrace Indigenous identity. They wanted to eradicate Indigenous identity. A quote from the Royal Commission on Aboriginal People. The Royal Commission on Aboriginal People, which was which began as a response to the Oka crisis when 
Canada's military surrounded the, the Haudenosaunee at Ganesatagi for all one summer. And so Canada was trying to, or, or there was an attempt by indigenous people and, and they started the commission on the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples to try to come to, to try to reconcile, to try to come to some understanding about how to resolve the damage or the pain or the, the things that have marred the relationship between Indigenous people in Canada. And in that commission, which is all available online by the day, by the way, in the Royal Commission, it says, in the first volume, it said, the residential school system was an attempt by successive governments to determine the fate of Aboriginal people in Canada by appropriating and reshaping their future in the form of thousands of children who were removed from their homes and communities and placed in the care of strangers. Those strangers, the teachers and staff, were According to Hayter Reed, a senior member of the department in the 1890s, to employ every effort against anything calculated to keep fresh in the memories of the children habits and associations which it is one of the main objectives of the industrial education to obliterate. Marching out from the schools, the children effectively re-socialized imbued with the values of European culture would be the vanguard of a magnificent metamorphosis. The savage was to be made civilized, made fit to take up the privileges and responsibilities of citizenship. That's a quote. The Canadian government document from the 1890s about the residential school's goal of eradicating every habit every relationship which kept fresh in the mind of these children who they were as indigenous people. The C Canadian government aimed at the children because they thought the adults were too hard to teach. So using the Indian Act, Canada legislated that indigenous children had to attend residential school and they used the church to run these schools. As uh, John West and others would say, John West was one of the early missionaries in Canada from the Anglican Church. The church would Christianize and the government would civilize. But why would church people take children away from their parents and seek to eradicate every relationship and value and practice that made these children indigenous? Even though by 1867, when Canada became a country, many indigenous people had already embraced the gospel, the answer in part was a built-in racist colonial attitude that permeated Canadian society, including the Canadian church. The country of Canada, of course, was consumed with, as nascent states were, of having dominion from sea to sea and they saw indigenous people as less civilized and moral training according to a memo sent to the Catholic principles of residential schools 
Moral training was to supplant aboriginal spirituality, which the church said was just pagan superstition. And in case you get self-righteous, thinking, well, that was the Catholic Church, the Baptist Church ran a residential school in Canada, too, in the Northwest Territories. And just in case you think, well, that's those other Baptists, that wasn't us, you need to understand that even today, when it comes to indigenous spirituality, the first question many Christians ask is, yeah, but what do you have to give up? You've got to give up some of that. You can't. So it's always about negating, putting away, instead of thinking about what good there is in spirituality. The indigenous children were not Christian enough for Canada. They were not spiritual enough because Canadian church people, as so many church people in many countries, fancied themselves as a Christian nation and thought that in order to bring heaven to earth and mark Canada as a truly Christian nation, they needed to force these children and people to be exactly like they were. They would make them lovable by changing them. And like so many nation-states, when a nation-state thinks that it can bring heaven to earth or that it is the embodiment of the kingdom of God come to earth, it ends, bringing, it ends, bring, it ends up bringing hell up instead. And the unmarked graves of 215 children f give evidence of this reality. Like the disciples, in our passage today, the church was so busy trying to see who was the greatest in the kingdom. They missed seeing the beauty of indigenous life and denigrated the identity of the people and treated the children with disdain. Like they were not people at all, only tools to further the aspirations of the nation. So the residential school used every tool to sever or obliterate every relationship that children had had with their own people and culture. They attacked indigenous children's relationship with the land. They sent them far away. A friend of mine was sent from his home all the way to another province where he had to attend residential school and then didn't get to go home very often, if at all. They attacked the relationship that indigenous children had with family. The graves testify to what survivors and communities said throughout the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, Canada's second attempt to move towards healing. The relatives, and I shouldn't say Canada's second attempt, because actually the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was commissioned at the request of the survivors of the residential schools. And the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was paid for out of the proceeds of the settlement that came to indigenous survivors of the residential school. And those survivors told during the TRC gatherings that relatives disappeared, that no one told the family what had happened to them that they did not return the bodies of the deceased. They did not let them know sometimes. The church was supposed to be the mother, 
That's what the idea was. The residential school would be the mother of these children. But they attacked the relationship they had with indigenous children had with their family by taking them away and by not letting them see their parents, for punishing them for speaking their own language. They tried to alienate children from their own people, thinking that then they would become like little Euro-Canadians, and then they could fit into society. But it ended up doing exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite. They attacked the relationship that Indigenous children had with their family, and even today struggle to have a relationship sometimes with each other because of all the generational trauma. They attacked the relationship children had with the Creator. As I stated earlier, they called Indigenous spirituality pagan superstition. And so they attacked, they told children they were I remember listening to another survivor said that she remembers a painting in the residential school and the priest would show it to them or whoever the teacher was and in hell the fires were burning and in hell it was all brown skinned people were in hell and then in, above there in purgatory there were a f most, mostly brown but a few white people and then in heaven there were only white people. And I remember she told a friend of mine that she believed, looking at that painting, that she would never be able to get to heaven unless she became white. But the attacked children's relationship had with the Creator. The church ended up more firmly entrenching the effects of the fall. If you think about in Genesis 3, the church cursed indigenous land. They put enmity between indigenous men and women, between indigenous children and parents, between indigenous children and other people. They attacked their spirituality, affecting, effectively driving them out of the presence of a good creator who had placed them in a good land into a land of torment which all leads to children dying far from home and to children who grow up trying to get home but alienated from their own self. If you define sin as anything that cuts off or prevents someone from feeling love and being able to receive and give love, then Canada is guilty of causing these little ones to be ravaged by sin. Not the fault of the children, but stuck in a state of self-content and unable to move forward. This is not the victim's fault. Yet this sin, the sin of their abuser and of the perpetrator of these crimes, this sin holds them, and they need the Creator to set them free. That is why I hear the words of this passage, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. Better to have a millstone hung around their neck and thrown into the ocean. And it is only the grace of God that gives forgiveness, even in the midst of all this. But I don't want to, I hesitated even to say forgiveness. 
thinking it might cheapen or allow some people to squirm out from underneath legitimate shame that is theirs to feel. I think that Canada needs to own and the church needs to own our failures. Canada has told indigenous children five lies. The worst thing about, in my opinion, one of the worst things about racism. There's probably worse things about racism. I think killing people is, is bad. There's nothing worse. But one of the worst things about racism is that you believe those things about yourself. Canada's told five lies to children. These are lies that adults say to children and permanently damage them, or at least put wound their soul, wound their soul. Canada's told indigenous children, you're not good, you're not good. Many of indigenous children who grew up when I did even though I didn't go to the residential schools, my aunties were put into residential schools. Um, when we played cowboys and Indians as little boys, my four brothers and I, none of us wanted to be the Indian because Indians, cowboys were good. That's what we believed because we watched all those westerns with Gene Autry and John Wayne. Cowboys were good and Indians were bad. And we believe that lie. That you're no good. You're not competent. I grew up believing that society said that indigenous people were lazy even though early missionaries said about my own people that they were always busy. They never stopped working. They never stopped working. Yet there was this idea that indigenous people were lazy. That was one of the stereotypes. And I believe that. To this day, I, I tend to, I struggle with being a workaholic because I think I'm not competent. I always have to try to prove that I'm good enough. I believe that lie. Also pushes some people to give up before they, because they just don't think they can succeed. You don't belong. I remember going to school and every day we'd line up at the front of the class and the teacher would look at our hands and if your hands were clean you got to sit down and all those white kids got to sit down every day and I was the only one left standing up there and I felt so ashamed because it meant that you were dirty and she'd send me to the bathroom to try to get clean. And I believed that I don't belong. I don't belong. The other lie people say is you're unlovable because of the things that my mom went through. The generational trauma then. We used to fight all the time when I became a teenager. I remember I left home when I was 16 for the first time. I walked out the door and I said, you know what, why don't you just go to hell? And my mom said, I may go to hell, but you'll be there waiting for me. And I remember walking out the door, and I remember thinking, I have become so bad that my mother can't even love me. 
and I believe that lie you're unlovable. You shouldn't exist. Indigenous people, my mother, my grandfather, we all pretended to be white or tried to pretend something else. Well, my grandfather couldn't pretend he was white. He told everybody he was Chinese. He thought he would endure less racism if people believed he was Chinese than if they believed he was indigenous. My mom told everybody we were mostly French and Scottish and I remember we went to my grand we took my mom to my grandmother's funeral. And we were sitting there and my younger brother leaned over to me and said, I wonder when all the French and Scottish relatives are getting here because all these indigenous people just came coming in. You shouldn't exist. You shouldn't exist. That was Canada's goal for indigenous identity. It shouldn't exist and all the laws were put in place right into the 1990s. The official policy was assimilation. In light of all this, it's not a time for churches to begin to point the finger at each other and to say it was them or for churches to claim it wasn't it wasn't the church, it was people in the church, which is a common thing that you know, the Catholic Church does. It will say that, oh, that wasn't the official church, that was just people in the church. It's not the time to continue to sow seeds of division by claiming your church is innocent and your people group is innocent. Everyone who calls Canada home is guilty of these things. It's an objective state guilt is. It's not primarily a feeling. Canada should just embrace its guilt about the residential schools and then begin to try to work to come up with a shared plan to try to heal, heal the damage. The feeling that people feel is either legitimate shame or illegitimate shame. The problem with most abusers is that they do not feel legitimate shame for their actions. They put the shame for their actions on the victims. That's what we do to people who live on the street. We put, even though society has put them there by the way that we function, many times people say to them, well, you're there because you don't work hard enough or you don't try hard enough. We put the shame on them instead of owning our own failures. Probably a more vivid example, a more stark example, is when someone abuses a child physically or sexually. The child actually feels ashamed. They feel shame because they couldn't stop it from happening. Even though that shame is not theirs, that's illegitimate shame. And the perpetrator doesn't seem to feel anything, doesn't seem to feel any shame for what they have done. Shame is supposed to give you energy to change, to be different. But instead of embracing legitimate shame for what happened and embracing these feelings that people feel because of the finding of these unmarked graves, many people end up trying to argue and say how they're innocent, how they're not to blame, or in a power of, in a show of power and strength, they'll get angry and march out of the room or the meeting, and perhaps even someone might do this listening to my words. 
or they sit and think with nostalgia about the past in Canada. They won't look at the colonial racist legacy of Canada. What they actually do is they'll look at the peacekeeper myth, the benevolent Canada myth, and they'll look with nostalgia at, to the past, the time when the church was really growing and they really did evangelism. Thinking like that, that's systemic racism because it blinds people to what happened. I think the next part of the passage is saying at least we could take understand it that it's we should embrace our failures. Canada should embrace its failures. Metaphorically cut off a hand, gouge out an eye, take responsibility for what has happened. And instead of claiming all those people have to, all those people have to do is to work harder, follow the rules and everything will be okay. Instead of them and st- instead we need to make failure part of the story and then work to write the next chapter where Canada stopped denying and promising but began to work to come up with a shared plan to heal the damage. Because God cares about children and people and he cares about indigenous children and these, according to our passage, these 215 are with the Creator. They're angels. They forever behold. What does it say? God cares about them. God cares about them. That he would leave everybody else to go look for them. Canada should institute a more thoroughgoing investigation into find these children help them to reconnect with their relatives we're still waiting for them to come home we need to listen indigenous people told the truth they came to their relatives the Canadian people in the treaty in the historic the numbered treaty the idea was that Canada, the, f- the, s- the newcomers and the First Nations, indigenous people, that we would live as relatives in the land and the Creator would hold us to this. Indigenous people told the truth. They came and they told the truth. And they were aiming at reconciliation. The last part of this passage, thanks to Gillian Harris, an elder, from the island, Vancouver Island. She said to me, she taught me, she said this this is not talking primarily about church discipline is what we usually read this passage about. If your your relative or your brother or your sister sin against you, go to them. This is about reconciliation. This is about seeking reconciliation. Go to your brother and sister if they've sinned against you. Indigenous people have done that. And not so they could sever the relationship with the newcomers of the rest of Canada, but seeking reconciliation. The passage says, go, tell them their sin, and if they listen, you have the relationship affirmed. Indigenous people have been coming and telling, telling about the sin. 
If they don't listen, take witnesses. And indigenous people did that. They began to file lawsuits in Canada, and the church had to take notice. But still they resisted, turning over the records. Listen. Listen. If they will not listen, take the church. The United Church, the Anglican Church, the Presbyterian Church, parts of the Catholic Church began to apologize, to put pressure on Canada, to own up to their own sin. Finally, in 2008, Stephen Harper apologized, which was supposed to open up a dialogue. So we have to, this is about telling the story about what happened until we heal. Indigenous people are the most forgiving, long-suffering people that I know. Even in the face of this further evidence, this further evidence, which just gives more evidence of the attempted cultural genocide that Canada perpetrated against, Canada and Cana the Canadian Church perpetrated against Indigenous people. Even in light of this, they continue, Indigenous people continue to call for reconciliation. Let's not miss the opportunity to feel deeply and continue the work of reconciliation. In conclusion, I want to read a short piece. I wrote this oh, a long time ago, but it seemed fitting. I was 28 when I moved to the city from the bush. We had moved to the city to go to college in search of a new identity. Moving from a lumber mill to a college setting, I would walk to the m in the morning to the college, and my steps took me through this stand of pine and spruce trees. It was hardly a forest, although I think the tourist companies referred to it as part of Regina, of the Regina Urban Forest. Urban Forest. Sort of an oxymoron, isn't it? Anyways, I would stand in the middle of those six trees, close my eyes, and hear the wind moving through the needles. And I would stand there and reach out and take some of those needles in my fingers and break them and hold them to my nose. And I could hear my home and I could smell it. I could hear birds singing and for a moment I was home. For if a seashell can hold the sound of an ocean, these trees held the great northern forest, home to me and my mother's people. And then I would cry sometimes, look out the window of our rented townhouse to the northwest, and I would cry on my bed, 28, alone and homesick. I had moved. Who am I in the middle of this city? My world has changed, but the things that anchor my identity are sometimes the small and mundane things, almost throwaway things and hardly even, that hardly even make it into the anthropology books. They are the ornaments, the throwaway items, the things that can be changed, but these do not change the essence of who I am, do they? I am a living, thinking, organizing, socializing, emotional human being. I am located in one of the various sociological groups that make up a culture that helps ensure my physical survival. These can shift and be rearranged, and I will still be in my essence a human? Or can you? 
Who decides what is thrown away? Who decides what I am or who I am? Identity, hard to grasp. The grandiose social experiments with my people were based upon the idea that you could kill the savage and save the child. Is it really possible to do that? After you, have, after you have thrown away all the unnecessary trappings of culture, do you have anything left? It seems to me this is occurring in the midst of our societies and churches. Slowly for the sake of some higher calling, more and more things are thrown away. Perhaps for efficiency's sake you throw away the necessity of greeting one another. Or maybe even throw away the, the, very, the many smaller language groups and customs. One by one the dominant group throws away the unnecessary items, thinking, these are not the essence of who we are. Pollution, poverty, war, racism, and all the other social problems all around us are the result of things being thrown away. Augustine would say that the good has become corrupted. The good has been pushed out and evil fills the whole. The good is distorted. There is a twisting that seems irreparable, except somehow, if one could create a new heaven and a new earth. I am from a group of those throwaway people. Many in the new country's government believe that all the Aboriginal people would soon be gone. They would cease to exist. Throwaway things. When they proved more resilient, it was thought that certain aspects of their culture and way of life could be altered or thrown away. A plan was launched to make them more suitable to fit into modern culture. They will not be harmed in their essence. They will have the same rights as us. They will need to get rid of certain backward habits, those unnecessary trappings of days gone by. They will have to move and establish a new identity and so residential school sought to rip the cultural identity out of children, throw it out before they get too attached to those unnecessary, uncultured ways. You know the things, language and songs, and the way they look at you. We'll teach them new language and new songs and a better way to look right at people. But it ended up producing drunkenness, AIDS, drug addiction, suicide, all corruption. All corruptions and the result of too many things thrown away. The residential schools did not work. Society itself cried out because of the brutality of the system. It was abandoned, but now children throw themselves away. But the same twisting remains. Drunkenness, suicide, drug addiction, STDs. But now children throw themselves away. They have forgotten who they are. No value. Thrown away. So the church tries to respond, tries to affirm the identity of people. They haul out the grand themes of the faith. They talk about justification, redemption, reconciliation, and salvation. But they still try to judge the essence and throw away things for my indigenous people. They try to be the ones who make a new heaven and a new earth by talking about a new identity in Christ. But what does that mean? It's sort of like the phrase, God loves you. It has become a meaning, meaningless phrase. Love means sex or new cars or the new car smell. The depth and breadth are gone in our current society. 
But if I say God loves you, the force, but if I say, pardon me, if I say God likes you, the force of the statement causes you to draw back and wonder, could this be true? The statement, my identity is in Christ, what does it mean? Does it recognize that the sound of the wind and the smell of pine are part of who I am? Or are those throwaway things, not important to the essence of who I am? Does it mean that when I feel the beat of the drum resonate right in the middle of my soul, is that a part of who I am? Or just a throwaway part, not important for this new earth and new heaven the church is busy constructing? Can I be an Indian anymore? Or is that something I can throw away? Thank you very much for listening. Amen.